Welcome back to the show. My guest for this portion of the program is State Senator John Morlock. State Senator John Morlock is a certified public accountant and certified financial planner. He was born in the Netherlands and moved with his family to Orange County when he was four years old. Senator Morlock earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Business Administration at Cal State University in Long Beach in 1977 and a year later passed the certified public exam. He holds many financial credentials, which served him well, enabling him to predict what would become Orange County's derivative debacle resulting in the county declaring bankruptcy in 1994. He first became a public servant when he was appointed to the Orange County Treasurer Collector position in 1995 and was later elected to that post, serving a total of 11 years. He then was elected to serve two terms as an Orange County Board of Supervisor. Then he was elected to the position he now holds in a special election to fill the state Senate seat vacated by the now Congresswoman Mimi Walters. Two weeks ago on this program, we heard from Democrat Ari Grayson, who was challenging Senator Morlock. Mr. Morlock is a Republican. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Senator Morlock. Good to be with you. Well, when I, one thing I wanted to find out before we get into real deep into the weeds with policy and that kind of thing. I wanted to know, when you transitioned from financial analyst to a policymaker, what kind of new skill sets did that require? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, becoming uh, a treasurer put me in charge of, you know, like a portfolio that sort of grew over time to about $7 billion. So I was able to manage a pretty substantial portfolio the other side of the equation was uh, collecting, you know, about $4 billion a year in property taxes. When I was putting myself through college, one of the jobs I had was a bank teller. So it was kind of fun to, you know, go back and have all the remittance processing equipment and all the rest. So running the department uh, after running, uh, I, was the, I was the administrative partner of the CPA firm that I was a partner in. And, uh, you know, then running a department was a lot of fun. But then changing to supervisor, that's when I really got into kind of a quasi-policy executive position. So it was sort of a blend, and now I'm just totally policy. Right. Uh, so it sort of transitioned kind of nicely over the, the, the time I've been in public service. Well, let's take up the minimum wage, which we can talk about how that does affect the 37th Senate District. We can have you talk about the consequences of both on the business side, and let's talk about the household side. Well, there's a lot of ways to attack it, Claudia. Uh, the first is that this will have a real impact on businesses. One businessman in my district contacted me and said, you know, I'm running a spa. I have uh, about 30 employees, and going well but if I and I was thinking about opening a second spa but now with the increase in the minimum wage I'll have to increase my prices by 20% in order to get the same bottom line net revenue because of the increase in the minimum wage and because of the loss of business I have to make up for it in a little higher price so consequently I'm not going to open a second shop so now there's 30 jobs that could have been created that won't. So you're going to have a lot of small businesses. They're going to have real difficult time. You're going to have the food industry, restaurants and fast food are going to have a difficult time. You might see a lot more automation. Uh, Europe's already using a lot of 
uh, order your meal at McDonald's by just going to a keyboard as opposed to talking to a person. So, you know, that one segment of our, of our county is going to have maybe even a net loss in jobs. Now, you're talking about a 50% increase in the minimum wage, yet the growth in the segment of our population that is 65 and older, which is about 13% and growing, their Social Security is not going to go up 50% over the next four to five years. So you're going to see the prices rise uh, to a point where they're going to have a difficult time utilizing services or fast foods or whatever other products that will now have increased in prices to accommodate this minimum wage. You look at another business, grocery stores, very low net profit. And so pricing and, and costs uh, are going to have to be reflected somewhere. So you're going to see food prices rise as well. So I'm really concerned about the seniors in, in my district. Well, I know that there's been coverage, too. There are also businesses that say raising their company's wage floor to $17 has really improved their bottom line with productivity. And I know we, you're, you've got a line item in there that, uh, you know, considers the costs of low wages. It is pushing people to longer commutes that can undermine productivity. We know Orange County is a one expensive place to live. It's a 46% above the national average. So as we consider the minimum wage, it's a living wage with respect to how households are going to manage with such a high cost of living. How do you reconcile that part of the equation? There are two ways to answer that, Claudia. Uh, one is that an across-the-board increase on the minimum wage is going to jeopardize certain industries, uh, not all. Uh, and the other answer is that the free market has a funny way of paying someone enough to meet their household expenses. Now, uh, if if someone has a skill set and he's still that that's very valuable, but he's still making minimum wage, then that employer obviously is making a big mistake because that employee could easily go to another employer and get a pay raise. So the market will pay salaries commensurate with the skill levels that are being provided by employees. Richard Newmark, UC Irvine's. Uh, go-to economist on the minimum wage has talked about instead of raising the minimum wage that perhaps raising taxes for a sort of redistributive effect to target the low incomes, especially low-income families with children. How would you see that solution working? Well, that's another interesting topic, Claudia. The state of California is very dependent on personal income taxes. Uh, so uh, currently 65% of our budget is funded by income taxes. And when you drill down into those numbers, you find that 13, excuse me, 17% of the taxpayers in California pay 87% of the personal income taxes. And of that 13%, a very insignificant number actually pay about 50% of the personal income taxes. This was something we've found in our own personal research, but also the Sacramento Bee just released this data last month. So 
we have to be very cautious about what we do with our high earners. And if we say we're going to take more of your money through higher taxes, what will that do in keeping them here? We have the state of New Jersey that lost one billionaire who moved from New Jersey. One guy moved to Florida, right? Florida, yeah. And it, it, yeah, I have a special session to figure out how to make up the income. So Senator Hertzberg of Van Nuys is working on uh, a, a bill to say, hey, how do we smooth out our revenues and how do we change the, the you know how much we charge for income tax, how much we charge for other taxes, and how do we modify them to try and get something that doesn't have these high ups and downs right. in the economy. And and so that's one thing that I'm I'm working with him and with the governor on. You know, we need to kind of ferret through all the ideas and make sure that they make sense. But but we've got to be careful that we don't encourage our high earners to move somewhere else to sell their stock to have a capital gains tax that's much lower. We've got to figure it out so that we don't hurt our best source of revenue. Okay. So the other issue is what I would call something like drive till you qualify. You know, where do you find a place to live that you can afford, whether you're renting or whether you're a young couple that's trying to buy a home, and you find yourself with these very lengthy um, commutes. commutes. Right. So that's, that's a quality of life issue. Uh, you're right. The, the price of housing and the rents in Orange County are very high. Uh, they are also in, say, the county of San Francisco. Uh, there are people driving from Stockton, Tracy, all around to drive into San Jose to the Silicon Valley to, to work. And we're talking about probably higher paid individuals. So now the, the issue is another problem. That is, why don't we have adequate housing that's affordable? You know, we have a low-income component, but it's obviously not enough. But how do we provide more housing inside Orange County? And, and we have such restrictive state laws like the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQAs, what it keeps being referred to, that makes building homes uh, so much more difficult. And, and then we have the developer fees, the, the fees that need to be paid for infrastructure, for libraries, fire stations, et cetera, uh, that, that are rather high that still need to be addressed as well. But that's a whole other fun topic. Well, that's a, and I'm glad you brought that up. Governor Brown's fix for the affordable housing crunch is cutting red tape in the permitting process. In Costa Mesa, as in other cities, the grassroots response is to factor into the permitting process where higher densities are allowed an inclusionary zoning requirement. How are you addressing that aspect of affordable housing as a legislator? Well, let's, let's, let's go back to the beginning, and that is that Governor Brown is doing something about cutting the red tape. That's, that's false. Uh, he has proposed in his budget to uh, try to streamline CEQA in order for the state to issue $2 billion in new debt to build housing for mentally ill homeless people. So he's making an exemption for that project, which is great because as a Republican, I'm actually supportive of that endeavor. And I was with President Pro Tem of the, of the Senate, Kevin DeLeon, and former President Daryl Steinberg in L.A. In, in the beginning of this year 
saying this is something that makes sense in the utilization of Prop 63 funding. But the governor has not signed any bills to improve CEQA, to improve the housing situation in California. He's only made exemptions for this idea and for arenas like in Sacramento or for a football stadium in L.A. So it sort of uh, depends on, you know, what the project is. But I've been working on what, what can we do to improve CEQA. And I think the governor is willing to do that. We just have to give him good bills. But trying to get a bill through the legislature is very difficult because of special interests that want to prevent it. Now, the housing element in Costa Mesa, you know, you have to meet what's called the regional housing need allocation. We called it RENA when I was a supervisor. Right. So there are certain, uh, you know, housing components that you have to try and meet. That every and, municipality and, is required to meet, right. Right. And so, nobody is, I don't think. Well, it's it's not an easy function, especially when I was a supervisor. When we approved a lot of projects, we we were always saying, okay, uh, it's in a certain area in a certain city. How many of those units will qualify for our mandatory <laughs> uh, requirements? Right. So you know, it's sort of an interesting battle. But you know, you you want more than low income housing. You want affordable housing. This we're we're talking about all how over. Do we provide units so that that our kids that are starting out don't have to drive, you know, into the Inland Empire every day in and out. So that's something that, you know, we still have to work on. And I'm glad the governor is at least looking at it in one aspect. And let's see if we can build on that. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, where my guest is Senator John Morlock, representing California's 37th Senate District, which includes, we can help, you can chime in with all the cities I'm forgetting here, Irvine, Costa Mesa, Newport, Anaheim, and all this, and let's see, Lake no, Forest. Laguna Beach, Laguna Beach, Lake Forest, Orange, Dustin, Villa Park, and Anaheim Hills. And all this on the June primary ballot. Well, let's now look to, Orange County is an incubator for enterprises that address climate change bringing prosperity as well as solutions to the region beyond. How are you helping promote this economic sector? Well, uh, it, with any sector in, in the economy, I try to stay out of its way and let it grow and thrive. And hopefully I can try and uh, work on legislation that frees up businesses from regulations. But here locally in the district, I've been uh, involved with the Forum for Corporate Directors for uh, probably a good seven or eight years. Uh, I'm also uh, accessible to what, what I call Octane, which is a group that actually helps new businesses and upstarts in biomed and, and green and clean energy. And then, of course, I'm, I'm active, have a lot of fun with Orange County Business Council and uh, their leadership. So I'm a, a free market you know, get out of the way, let people start their businesses, let them thrive, and try not to encumber them. Uh, another business that's not necessarily in the same vein, but we have a, a growing industry in Orange County that has to do with vaping, which is an alternative to cigarette smoking. And, you know, I voted against making it a tobacco product and taxing it, you know, at, at high amounts, because we have such a a vibrant new industry growing in Orange County, and now now Sacramento is sort of putting a, a pretty serious wet blanket uh, on that particular endeavor. 
So I'm sorry. What what is the sector that it is? You mean the the it's, the it's commercial called, vaping? It's called vaping. It's you know right, right, it's an right. alternative to, to cigarettes. Right, right. But you're saying the commercial sector is uh, have, the retailing have, area for where those are purchased. No, we, actually, we actually have we have actually manufacturing. Okay, I got it. Okay, here in Orange County, uh, and and yeah, we've got lots of retail, and it's a segment that's been growing, uh, but now it's going to be hammered with uh, increased taxes. And we've even got a ballot measure coming up in November that'll put a pretty steep uh, tax on tobacco products. Uh, so, so that's the kind of stuff. As a libertarian-leaning person, it's, it, I, I've been opposed to and voted against those types of bills to let people do what they want to do without, you know, over encumbering them with taxation. Well, I'm wondering if the taxes are a one way of dealing with the hidden costs, the public costs that are to public health with the consumption of any kind of tobacco product and it's building it into that retail system, so to speak. Yeah, and isn't that a very nice idea to kind of increase the price so you have the tax so you can deal with medical costs? But what you do in reality is create a black market and then you get no tax, but you still have all the tobacco use and you still have all the medical problems. So... How do we find them in, in addressing these issues? And, and so maybe that's what's so fun about being a state senator and debating my colleagues on, you know, what is the best way to deal with some of these issues? Well, let's move on to sort of like big brick and mortar kind of an infrastructure. The times we have right now that money isn't going to get any less expensive to borrow. This is about the, the, not quite the bottom, it was even less expensive to borrow, maybe about a half a year ago. But how do you see the mix of public investment in infrastructure addressing the economic downturn that continues for many and uh, the need to address the infrastructure that has been on a deferred maintenance schedule for probably a generation and a half yeah great great question it, borrowing for municipalities has been cheap for about the last 10 years uh, interest rates have been at all-time lows and federal reserve has kept its overnight interest rate at just about zero for for a very long time so it's always been good to, uh, opportunity to, to borrow at, at low rates the the issue is uh, where's your your funding stream now the state has for the last 13 or 14 years has been spending about $10.5 billion a year on our roads for transportation. All during that time, the amount of gas tax has been rising. It may have plateaued a little bit uh, in the last two years, but overall it's just it's been rising, which means that the state has kept its spending static. So it has taken transportation, gas taxes, and weight fees and spend them somewhere else, probably to fund the, the ever-growing pension costs that we have to pay for state employees. So California has made transportation a very low priority. It now has the highest, largest budget in its state history and is still asking for more money in the form of car taxes, in the form of higher gas taxes and diesel taxes. So it's sort of a a conundrum where you say, hey, when is this state going to make a priority of deferred maintenance and not shift the money somewhere else and then let the roads rot and then come to the taxpayers and say, it's your turn 
you've got to come up and pay for these improvements. You've got to fix the potholes. It's a little disingenuous. We have other problems in California. We have a Department of Transportation known as Caltrans. It costs Caltrans three times the national average to fix our roads. They spend $501,000 per mile. And we don't have snow all over the ground like Michigan or some of the other Midwestern states. And we can't even compare uh, in, in any, any metric. They also don't outsource. They only outsource 10% of their architects and engineers when most states are at 50%. Arizona and Florida are at 80% plus. They also have too many employees that aren't working. They have, according to the Legislative Analyst Office, 3,500 employees in their architects and engineers department that are, are not necessary. That's $500 million a year we're spending in keeping people on payroll that aren't really doing anything. Most states would love to have $500 million for their roads. So there's a lot of things where the state should be focused on improving how it delivers the services for maintaining our roads instead of only 20 cents out of every dollar actually going to pavement. So we really need some management reform in California. We, 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 we're not like a county where you have a board of supervisors and a CEO, and if you have an inefficient department that isn't meeting metrics, you know, you can, you can fix that immediately. But in, in Sacramento, you, you have to do a bill or something, which is the craziest way to manage the, the departments of the state. Or you have to rely on the governor to do something, but the governor was elected with the help of public employee unions, so he's not in the mood to lay anybody off. So that's a, another conundrum we have to face. So we need, to, we need to be honest to our taxpayers and say, hey, once we're running the most efficient Department of Transportation and you see we still need funding, then we should go to them for a tax increase. Senator Mordock, what's the source for the 3,500 transportation workers that are not producing? Uh, how do you document that? How do you know that, that amount well, of, of, of I got, labor I, force? I got, the num- I got the numbers from a state department called the Legislative Analyst Office. They issued the report in May okay. of 2014. It's a public document. It's on the website of And it was worded as that, as that they are not productive employees no, on they're, they're, the... They're, they're, they are overstaffed by 3,500 employees. Running, I mean, so it could be any number of different positions, but that's... We also, and have, that's, a state, we also have a state auditor, Claudia, and the state auditor just came out with a report recently that Caltrans in 2009 paid $250,000 for a model on how to determine which roads should be repaired first. It was asked, how's that model working? They said, fine. State Auditor just came out two months ago and said that Caltrans never used that model. And they probably didn't because it showed that they could reduce some of their employees in some of their regions. Caltrans also had an audit by the State Auditor in 2011 that said that 62% of the projects they worked on were over budget. These are state-provided numbers uh, this, is, this is not from some think tank or from some gadfly group. These are stats and data that are provided. I mean, it gets almost comical. In I think it was September of last year, the state auditor determined that one of the engineers one of, uh, uh, at Caltrans golfed 55 days on state time. This is a documented. They had two supervisors, and each of them said, you're watching this guy, right? I mean, it's like, a, it's like a sad movie or a comedy well, show. Well, I, I, I understand it, it is waste. I agree with you on that. But it's sort of 
in a way, it trivializes that there is a very large unattended infrastructure deferred maintenance problem, and we're not even getting to seismic retrofitting and that kind of a thing. So it's sort of, um, it's, it's much more money. It's, it's a whole system that will just come crumbling down with some kind of a civil emergency. And, you know, I'm concerned that th- with those sort of golfing anecdotes are a distraction to what needs to be attended in, in the really, really big ticket items. So I'm, I think you'd agree well, with I me think, about that. I think, no, I don't know if I agree with you on that. Um, if, if you're not running a, an efficient radio show, or, or a radio station, then why should we keep funding that station? We should we should be excelling in delivering services as a government. And if we're not, then how can we convince or assure the taxpayers that they're getting the maximum benefit for the sacrifices they're making? We can't say on one hand that we've got to give a minimum wage increase because 40% of our population is at the poverty level or lower, and then come to them and say, we still need you to pay more tax, you have now wiped out their minimum wage increase. The benefit of the increased income is now going to go to higher fuel costs because they live further from their jobs, like we discussed earlier. Right. So, right. so, I mean, the, the problem gets like a pretzel, but, but yes, in the meantime, our roads are terrible. We have the worst roads in the state, yet we have the highest gas taxes in the nation. <laughs> it, so how do you... I mean, that, that, that's something that screams out for attention. It's how can we be more better stewards of tax dollars so that we can provide, that we can guarantee them that they're going to get a good benefit? I'll give you one positive example. Here in Orange County, we're, we are what's called a self-help county. We voted to charge ourselves another half-cent sales tax, and that money has gone into our roads. And we have improved the, the 55, the 91 uh, the five freeway going all the way to the L.A. border up into Buena Park. You, you, when you travel north to L.A., you know when you hit the L.A. County border. We made commitments, we took the taxes, and we paid and made those improvements. In fact, we even had a little extra money, and we improved the Garden Grove Freeway. So there's some direct results of, of a positive, well-run local transportation department that can brag about its performance and in 2006 when it said we need to renew this tax the voters of conservative orange county did so with a vote of 67 percent or more so when you deliver a good product you're going to get support and i'm just saying caltrans and the state needs to provide a better product and i think we'll be there you know we we gave them two billion to build the bay bridge they've already spent six billion so you know you want to know where your road roads are we put it all into one bridge going from Oakland to San Francisco. And we've got a governor that wants to spend $68 billion on a high-speed rail. That money should be used for the roads. Let's fix our roads and bridges and tunnels first, and then let's go work on an interesting, you know, unique project uh, that maybe no one will use, but that's being cynical. So I would like to close now with how you are encouraging voters, especially young voters, to turn out. Well, um, I give a speech or two a week, and so I'm out in the public and encouraging people to, to participate. I'm a member of the Orange County Republican Party, and that body is focused on getting out the vote and registering voters, so we're, we're funding that uh, and helping them out as well. And, you know, we're just trying to educate people that, you know, 
this state is mismanaged. It has the highest unrestricted net deficit of any state in the nation, and it has the highest pension liabilities of any state in the nation. We've got to get involved. We have to get involved to turn this state around before it grinds to a financial halt. And so that's what I've been doing, Claudia. And, and other than that, I, I tell everybody that uh, the weather's great. And that's why, that's why we're enjoying our state and why we live. And that's why they should vote? Well, they should vote because it matters. It'll matter to their pocketbook. It'll matter to their kids' pocketbooks and their grandkids' pocketbooks. Well, here's to a, a huge turnout in the 37th <laughs> district, both now and in the general election. Thank you, Senator John Morlock, for taking the time today. Claudia, thanks for the opportunity and the fun. That was California State Senator John Morlock running for re-election in California's 37th Senate District on the June 7th primary ballot. Stay tuned.